Please be seated. We're going to excuse the big kids to the catechism class at this time. That's what we normally do. Uh, If you're wondering what they're doing, they are learning their faith. They're being instructed in it, learning to memorize some basic teachings that we share as, as believers. And we like to demonstrate that once a year. We'll do that again in December. And so um, take up this task of not only allowing the church to catechize your kids, but yourself to be catechized. Take up this task as well to know your faith. Trinitas Church, we're going to talk today all about company. This weekend, or rather this week, uh, we celebrated my son's birthday party, and we went out to Lake Chelan and uh, went to the water slides out there. He brought a few of his pals with him. And um, I don't know about you, but I, I prefer the water slides in Lake Chelan over, say, Wild Waves, or you name it, because it's um, actually hot over there, which it never is over here. But I, I was a bit nostalgic when I was there. My family used to go to Lake Chelan almost every single summer. We'd do that with our extended family. And we had a lot of company, four or five families there together with some of them, three, four kids. The fact is we don't do that anymore as an extended family. The company that my family has become is changed drastically. We don't even share the same faith as we once did, even nominally. And it affects our capacity to have fellowship. Friends, we all feel the weight of fellowship and company that does not build us up in our faith. Paul is going to make reference to bad company today. And in the same breath, we're going to have to reflect on what good company is. He does it right in the midst of a grand argument for the resurrection from the dead and the centrality of it to the Christian faith. Paul would have us know our company has everything to do with how devoutly we hold fast to the truths of the Christian faith. Given that all of us have compromised company and are ourselves at times compromising company. Let's go to the word in prayer and ask the Lord to open our ears to it. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we like to think ourselves immune, immune to a world that is perishing. Lord, many of us have never considered, considered at all how contagious the ways of the world happen to be. Many of us have never considered how deeply we have imbibed practices and habits and beliefs that are contrary to your word. We pray that we would be convicted, therefore, today. We also pray that we would be lifted up, Lord God, by the reality that in Jesus Christ we have fellowship, fellowship with an eternal and flawless Savior, saints departed who have lived bold lives of faith for you, that we even have company with brothers and sisters from afar whom we never see, but with whom we are united in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be lifted up by these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, by your spirit, amen. You've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 29. We're gonna read from 29 to 34. Then when we're done, we will sing a short verse, the Gloria Patri together. So follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, 
by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is God's word. Well, Trinitas Church, this passage opens with a reference to a practice that is, by all accounts, utterly obscure. The passage opens in verse 29, speaking of this fact. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? This is a perplexing verse for many. It's the sort of thing that any cult group who has a strange practice latches onto. You may have noticed in Trinitas Church, we have never baptized anyone for the dead. And perhaps you're wondering why this practice is missing. We need to start our reflections with this observation. Paul does not begin arguing for the resurrection in its reality by saying, otherwise, why do we baptize for the dead as if it were a Christian practice? Nor does Paul even say, why do you, Corinthians, baptize for the dead as if they had been doing it in any great amount? He says, why do they baptize for the dead? This means that Paul is not appealing to Christian practice for his arguments. He's appealing to the practice of a group, a group, perhaps a segment of the Corinthians, pointing out their inconsistency. Perhaps some among the Corinthians did indeed undergo the rite of baptism for people who had already been deceased as if vicariously to help them. Paul would then be pointing out that this would be rather inconsistent because there are people saying that the resurrection does not matter. So why would it be of any value or import to apply a right to your body, your physical body, to bring about benefit for those who've been released from the body and are better off, therefore, anyways? The Corinthians have no place for the resurrection from the dead, in which case it would be bizarre that they would invest any weight in rites that apply to the body. Others have suggested that maybe a small group of believers, they've been baptized on account of the witness of those now deceased martyrs who went to their death in great faith, who were inspired to believe in the gospel at that point. And in that sense, they were baptized on account of the witness of those deceased and departed. Paul is saying, why would people undergo such a rite of baptism? on account of the witness of those deceased, if in fact they are ceased for good, if in fact they simply cease to be, what would be the point? I would rather submit that whatever this passage is referring to, one of the better explanations is this. I think that Paul is referring to a rite that the Jewish people themselves practice, and this would answer well to why Paul is appealing to this rite as something they do, not we as Christians do, or not you as Corinthian Christians do, but somehow informs our belief. To understand why Paul would do this, you've got to see how Paul has been arguing all throughout 1 Corinthians. Paul will often bring to bear some of the most obscure proof texts for different practices and parts of the Christian belief system, things you would never think of. Do you remember back in chapter 5? Paul is saying, why should we excommunicate immoral brothers? And he says, well, 
Here's my proof text. Moses says to take the leaven out of your dough. How many of you would have thought to use that proof text to argue for excommunication? The answer is probably almost no one, except for Scott Charnley in the back. When Paul is arguing in 2 Corinthians as to why believers should not marry unbelievers, he pulls out a proof text. He goes, my proof text is that Moses says not to yoke an ox and a donkey together. How many of you would have thought of that proof text? Paul frequently appeals to rites and practices prescribed in the Old Testament to bring to bear Christian practice. Here's, I think, the best explanation for this reference to baptism for the dead. In the Old Testament, there were a vast number of washings and cleansings that Hebrews 9.10 calls baptisms. Every single time someone in the Old Testament would get washed to become ceremonially clean, that is a sort of baptism. Friends, in the Old Testament, if you came into contact with a dead body, you would be unclean physically. You would, as it were, contract the contagion of their death. And you were not allowed to be in the precincts of the temple or the tabernacle. And you would even defile anyone who came near you. In the Old Testament, you would therefore get baptized on account of your contact with the dead. The principle was rather straightforward. By being around a dead body, God would have us understand a principle That the contagion of sin and death is contagious to people. This is the truth that God was teaching in the Old Testament. This rite is referenced in Numbers 19. It says anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, that's baptized himself by a particular means, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. The manner by which you would come out of this unclean state by contact of the dead is that the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day this water for cleansing. Paul's argument, therefore, is rather straightforward. Why would it be the case in the Old Testament that people would be baptized, cleansed and purified for contact with dead people if not to foreshadow and represent the truth that there will be a resurrection from the dead. What was the point of this rite in the Old Testament if not to convey that those like you and me, though we live and move and walk among a people who are under the curse of sin and death, will nevertheless be purified, raised from it to new life in eternity. This, I would submit, is the most intelligible explanation of what Paul is talking about. And it anticipates Paul's warning in verses 33 to 34 about bad company. Paul says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Yes, just as much as contact with a dead body would make you ceremonially unclean, living and moving and breathing in a world of relationships that are full of sin and death will corrupt any sort of good habits any sort of Christian ethic and belief with which you might carry on. Paul would have us know, Trinitas Church, that death and disbelief are contagious. When you read the New Testament, you cannot miss the persistent warning of everyone from Christ to each of his apostles about the tendency of the world to corrupt. 
Jesus in the parable of the sower, you might remember this famous parable, perhaps one of the most recognizable. It's a parable about the word of God being spread about the earth like seeds. It talks about the word of God being spread among thorny ground. And it says this, but the worries of the world, this is the thorny ground. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The world has a profound capacity to choke the word of God and its truths. Many of you may know that James said that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is about visiting those in distress like widows and orphans. But he also says that pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained by the world. In another instance of appealing to Old Testament rites and the cleanliness system, Paul says in 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Speaking of the world, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. We are told again and again to be separate from the world. I'll have you know your belief in the resurrection will wane with worldliness. To begin, the resurrection isn't easy to believe in. The fact of Jesus' resurrection isn't easy or natural for any human heart to believe. Doubly, believing in the relevance of Jesus' resurrection to your life, the relevance of the resurrection on the last day to your life right now isn't easy to believe. And even if you understand it and believe it, the resolution to bring this hope to bear daily is not easy to do. When you understand that, and you understand the world will affirm you in never giving these things your consideration, I have a question for you all. Have you any fear whatsoever of being stained by the world? Do you have any trepidation? Do you have any fear that maybe you have been deeply and thoroughly stained by a worldly perspective and practice already right now? Do you even worry about it? I have found too often as I work at a Christian university that it's almost a mark of pride among believers that um, they can glide into worldly relationships and contacts with ease, feeling no weight or burden of the world or its worldliness. We therefore need to take a moment to reflect on the reality of worldliness We need to reflect on the reality of worldliness and this great truth taught to us from the time of Moses to the present that worldliness and death are contagious. To begin with, every single one of you has a natural family. I will bet you that every single one of you in this room has some natural family member who does not share your faith. Think about it. Think about how the dynamic of the family in which you grew up in or in which you are right now affects your habits, your appetites, your expectations, even the things about which you might daily converse. I'm burdened by the fact that I have so many unbelieving family members that when we gather together for anything from Christmas to Thanksgiving, seldom is the name of Jesus Christ mentioned, much less his resurrection. Consider your workplace especially if you are a man who spends the greater part of your day at some workplace. 
Consider your work relations, even consider your business. What is the mission statement of that business that you work for? I'll bet you it has not one thing to do with a vision of resurrection in eternity. I'll bet your business has no reference to that. That means that what you might spend the greater part of your day worrying about and thinking about is very hard to connect to this central truth of resurrection. Friends, even more consider our entertainment. The favorite means of entertainment in the 20th century in America is without a doubt your TV. Your TV. It's actually been demonstrated that when you watch TV, your brain is less active than when you are sleeping. That is to say, when you are watching TV, this great invention apparently is capable of enabling you to rest Sometimes, in a more profound way than sleep, you just turn into a zombie for a bit, and that's not altogether bad. I suppose rest is a rather great thing. But the problem is this. The things that we watch in this favorite form of entertainment have no reference ever, ever, to the grand truth of the resurrection. You know, I was uh, at my friend Scott's birthday party, had a little gathering um, with some friends, and uh, when we were there, we were talking about how we all enjoyed um, the old classic show, The Office. You know, it's been a while, been on the air for a while. And we began discussing uh, The Office, and, and I'd thrown this question out for many people who love The Office. I always ask people who, who love it, if there were a Christian in The Office who were an overt Bible-believing Christian, I'm not talking like Angela, if you know who she is, I'm talking like someone who's really serious about their faith. Who would that person be the most like of all those on the office? The most natural answer that people always come up with is Jim because everybody likes him or something. And uh, that's like the worst answer. The fact is, is if Christians were in the office, that show that we watch that never refers to Christ, his resurrection or eternity, we would be the most like a character named Dwight. By far and away, the most annoying, bizarre character because he constantly is bringing to bear these otherworldly, strange beliefs in a place where they clearly do not belong. Where they are clearly not shared by other people and it makes him something of a freak in the context of his job. Friends, what we are taught on TV and the world that is constantly set before us on TV is so far from the world in which we live as believers One great Christian thinker has put it this way, Christians ought to live in such a way that our manner of life would seem insane to any onlooker unless the resurrection is a reality. It's how we ought to be living. But our company, natural and by virtue of our work, and even the people that we identify with by virtue of our entertainment have no appetite for the things of the kingdom. This is doubly problematic when we consider the world in which we live when it comes to social media, cell phones, you name it. Our attention spans are so little. Our appetite for the shocking to get us to look at anything is increased unlike it has ever been before. In the Bible, in the the resurrection is not presented to us in these ways. We are so far from a practice that was common among the Puritans. You know, I don't know if you know this, but the Puritans would make it their practice every single day to meditate the entire day on one scripture. Most of us don't have the attention spans to meditate on one scripture for five minutes, 
much less an entire workday. Thomas Watson said, meditation is the soul's retiring of itself, that by a serious and solemn thinking upon God, the heart may be raised up to heavenly affections. It's a practice that's far from us because of the weight of the world in which we live. Friends, I want you to know as well that there is not only a pervasive worldliness about us in all of our relations, but there is a worldly moralism that is profoundly attractive and will gain you significantly more rapport and appreciation from your neighbor than a Christian ethic will. If you've never considered this, those of you who have kids, it is the experience of every Christian young adult when they are cut loose to the world to have this realization This realization where they say, Mom, Dad, you taught me that Jesus is all important, but here's what I've discovered. This non-Christian community at my university, at my work, wherever it may be, they're fun, they're intelligent, and they're moral, and they're often more kind than Christians. You're telling me that Christ is the center of this all. They don't have Christ, but they have all these things. They have all of these things. And I'd rather be one of them, one of them than one of you guys. There is an attraction to worldly moralism that is profound and powerful. And I'll tell you this, the single most powerful argument against Christianity has nothing to do with anything intellectual. It has nothing to do with critique of the scriptures. The single most powerful argument against Christian community is unbelieving community. That's because the viewpoint of the world is contagious. It's powerful and contagious. I remember an old friend of mine who I grew up with in high school who was involved in Young Life, a Christian organization. We do Bible studies together. He went off to a Christian university in name and his Christianity began to wane as that culture in which he found himself was deeply secular. We were walking around Green Lake one day and um, I saw this old church building that had clearly been converted from being a Christian church into something else, some type of temple of meditation. And I was like, man, I just, I got to see what this actually is, what group this was. I don't remember if the group was Baha'i or whatever it was, but I was just like, man, just grieves my soul to see a Christian church having been turned into an outpost of pagan thinking. And I remember my friend distinctly saying, hey man, you know, they're good people too. They're good people, they're moral people, they're probably as good a Christians as we are without the name. I remember having to confront my friend with the idea of just being a good person and that somehow being a ticket to heaven is the essence of Pharisaism. It's not Christianity, my friend. But increasingly he couldn't see the difference. There's a worldly moralism that is contagious And yet I'll tell you this, doing good because something is socially acceptable versus doing good in gratitude and worship to God are two radically different things. And the one is utterly evanescent and will dissipate as soon as being good becomes hard. The one is the fruit of belief in the resurrection. The reasons why we don't believe in Christ are fundamentally irrational and they have to do with contact with the world. At root, it's romanticism. That reason is overrated and that the feeling of just belonging and acceptance with a group of people and having a deep friendship 
is a better reason to go one way as opposed to another than any other. This worldview of romanticism was epitomized by a philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He tells his lifelong story where he just is led here and there by his feelings, and that's how most of us are led. It's a fundamentally worldly way of living. He was at first Protestant, then he became Catholic, then he became Protestant again, and as he put it, the very best argument for Catholicism that he ever found was a beautiful woman who happened to be Catholic. I mean, this is the sort of worldly movement and oscillation from belief system to belief system that the world has. And I'll have you know, the fruit of this is ultimately hedonism. Paul references it in this passage, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. When you are immersed in a worldly worldview, where there is no eternity, final judgment, resurrection, there's nothing of ultimate consequence. No matter how moral you may begin, you will end up a hedonist living for nothing but pleasure. This was the philosophy of Epicureanism in Paul's day, but it was the philosophy of all practical atheists throughout Scripture in the same proverb, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is quoted by the prophet Isaiah, as on the lips of those who don't fear God. You know what's funny is worldly moralism and hedonism are really not so different. The world just oscillates between the two. And Hollywood has found a way to be like right in the middle of a perfect homeostasis, where they're moral enough to gain worldly praise and immoral enough to have a whole lot of fun. This is what worldliness is. It's sad, but worldliness is not only to be found in the world, bad company is to be found in the church as well. Who after all is Paul speaking to when he says, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to a Christian church. This all, all of this reflection ought to make us pause for a moment and ask ourselves this important question, what kind of company are you? Maybe this whole sermon you've been thinking about the potential bad company of some other person in your life or even in this church, I would have you ask, what kind of company are you? If someone were to fellowship with you, How would they hear you treating your annoyances about life, family, neighbor, or even other people in this church? Would they hear you speaking of them as if they were your real and biggest problems or as if they were light and momentary afflictions and even opportunities to be burdened for a short time by the kingdom until Christ has come and returned and resurrected us from the dead? I ask you this question, what kind of company are you? When even the possibility of correction from your neighbor presents itself, do you put up your defenses and announce to all that I will have no correction directed to me? And ask yourself if that is the disposition of a living, breathing Christian or of one who is dead. Are we more like the dead bodies in the Old Testament that would defile others? Or are we more like fountains of life? Joy, therefore, to be around. When we look at this problem of worldliness, which Paul speaks of, and which he says can swallow one's belief in the resurrection, uh, there are many false solutions that we can come to, the very first of which is that perhaps we should all just withdraw from the world. 
Maybe Trinitas Church should buy land somewhere out in eastern Washington where we can all uproot and go to to be free from the worldliness of this greater western Washington region. That sounds extreme, I imagine, but for many of us, we have this idea that we will have no fellowship with sinners and we will be the more opposite to Christ than like him. Jesus ate and drank and reclined with sinners and it even won for him scorn from Pharisees. So we don't get away from worldliness by never eating with people who don't share our worldview. We don't get away from worldliness by making our best efforts to never understand or make a reconnaissance of their philosophy and worldview. In a funny way, Paul tells us that in this passage. When Paul says bad company corrupts good morals, Paul is actually quoting a Greek poet by the name of Meander. So clearly, we can't be away from worldliness by being ignorant of their belief systems. Paul himself is evidently well acquainted with it. I don't know if you know this, but on many occasions, Paul will quote, he will quote Greek philosophers and poets. In Acts 17, 20, it says, in him, that's God, we live and move and have our being. Paul's actually quoting a philosopher named Epimenides. Paul also says that we are all God's children. He's actually quoting a Greek poet named Erratus. We don't get away from the world by not understanding or knowing what they believe told of Moses, that great man of God and lawgiver, that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. He was thoroughly educated in paganism. It's funny, a lot of times you'll say to me uh, when people find out that we homeschool our kids, not, not frequently, I'll get you know, an eye cast upon us as if, or maybe it's even said, are you just teaching your kids to uh, shelter them from the false belief systems of the world or from worldliness? And it's quite the opposite, I always tell them. I'm actually homeschooling my kids because I want to teach them about all of the false worldviews that are out there. I'm glad to take up that mantle. I just think I'm gonna do do a better job at that than will someone who doesn't believe that truth and falsity ultimately exist. Another false solution is uh, to just isolate yourself. I'm just going to be away from everybody. The bad news I have for you, friends, is that um, you, all by yourself, might be the very worst company. You're a sinner too. We all are. The only solution to this problem of worldliness and bad company is a very conscious effort and labor at Christ's company. Not just company with those who outwardly are moral, but company and fellowship and union with Jesus Christ, the resurrected man. To understand this, we've got to understand the gospel. We preach it every Sunday. The good news of the gospel is that we are all, it begins with this bad news, we are all born dead with no hope because of the sin of our father Adam. And we are all subject to a penalty of eternal death because we have broken God's holy law. The good news of the gospel is that the eternal son of God took on human flesh to enter this world of sin and defilement. And he walked among us. He came first as a prophet with a message of his kingdom on his lips, spoken to people who were dead to make them alive by his authoritative word. He came as a priest who bore the contagious penalty of sin. He bore it unto death on the cross, bearing our death that we needn't die 
And this Jesus rose from the dead as a conquering king, advancing his kingdom in this world as we saw just before I left for vacation. And this basic message, this Christ himself is received by faith alone as Jesus himself said to a synagogue official, he said, do not be afraid, only believe. It's the same thing I say to you, only believe in this savior. And this tells us what it means to have Christ company. It means to be like him, ready to die daily for a world that is perishing, ready to walk into her death, armed, invested with the life of Christ, that this world that is perishing, that that she may live. Paul speaks of this type of life in verses 30 to 32. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? He says, why are we walking into this world of sin and death? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? To believe this gospel, to have fellowship with Christ, to be unstained by the world, is to have our present happiness in our union with Christ. That means in our likeness to him, in going into a world where we suffer that others may be saved. Where we go into the world as an advancement of Christ's kingdom, a an outpost of victory over that death that is all around us where life abounds. Our happiness is in our union with Christ. As Paul himself was united to Christ in his suffering and our hope is in a world to come, in a resurrection to life and victory over the dead. Friends, have you ever considered Paul's suffering for the kingdom? and the sort of company he had, and the sort of company he would be. I'll tell you right now, but Paul would be the absolute worst bowling partner you could ever find. He'd never be available, and for the greater part of his life, he was imprisoned. You would call that bad company when it comes to the worldly measure of company. But if your heart was intertwined with Paul, like a friend and a companion, you would be daily dying with him as this brother in the faith laid down everything for the advance of the kingdom. You would have a fellowship and company that is deeper than mere events, social gatherings. You'd have a mystical and spiritual union with him and with Christ because your heart would be where his heart was. Paul's suffering was evident to the Corinthians. They knew it. The Corinthians knew it because when Paul came to Corinth, the first thing he experienced when he preached the gospel in the synagogue was intense opposition from the Jews to such a degree that they were expelled from the synagogue, had to worship next door. Shortly after that, the conflict was so intense that eventually they took legal action against Paul. They uh, appealed to a, a local pro That's the highest authority by the name of Gallio, saying that Paul should be imprisoned because he's teaching a religion not sanctioned by Rome. After these legal issues, they eventually beat Paul's friend Sosthenes. And I want you to think about the sort of mental anguish of knowing that someone, by virtue of their association with you, were physically beaten because they shared your profession of faith. Think about the sort of burden you would bear. 
Paul in this passage says, not only did I suffer affliction when I was with you in Corinth, he says, right now, why am I fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus? Probably in allusion to the political and financial powers who were oppressing him in that city. See, when Paul preached in Ephesus, he actually hurt the sale of silver idols. And a man by the name of Demetrius led an entire riot against him and his companions. Tell you this, friends, the world will put up with Christianity as long as it does not affect their finances. And as soon as it does, you will have enemies quickly. Paul had enemies, but he had good company with Christ. This is why at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That's in Ephesus, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. We don't know, but Paul's life was in danger when he was in Ephesus. He was this close to being dead. Paul further elaborates on his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11 to this same ungrateful people. He says this, speaking of their great teachers, are they servants of Christ? Well, I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Five times he was lashed, 39 times on his back as Christ was prior to his crucifixion. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I spent a night and a day floating in the ocean. A night and a day. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. For us to keep up a different company than the world, we have to have company with Christ. And to have company with Christ is to be burdened for the kingdom. The only remedy for worldliness is company with Christ in his suffering. The Bible calls this mystical union. There is a special deep union with Christ that you have when you suffer with the kingdom and there is a proximity to him that you have that others do not and it's undeniable. I'll tell you this, when you suffer for the kingdom and you read about old saints who had to suffer for the church or the advancement of the kingdom, it's weird but you you feel like they're your brother in a way that you didn't before. (laughs) In the many the long saga of Trinitas Church trying to find locations to worship at, as I read those Puritans who were ejected from their normal churches and had to worship in barns, I would just read going, man, I, th- I, th- I think I kind of know what that was. Just a, just a little bit, a tiny, tiny bit. Felt a camaraderie. You need to be in the practice of looking at your burdens as a point of camaraderie and fellowship, even with saints departed that is mystical, deep, and spiritual. 
instead of simply lamenting it at all times and chiding the Lord for giving it to you. Some of us in this church right now, if we're honest, we say things like this, I feel restless, I just don't feel very close to God. And I'll have you know this, you may not be. You may not be. If your every waking thought is a worldly consideration about how you can get more pleasure, more gain, more rapport in a worldly sense, you may not be very close to the Lord. So I lay upon you this assignment for the Lord's day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves. This is to the same Corinthian church that had trouble believing in the resurrection and was deeply worldly. I'm asking you to do something to examine yourselves. Some of us hate this. The thought is, if I examine myself, I'll only, I'll only be depressed. And I want to give you this criterion. Can you see any appetite for the kingdom in your life where you are willing to and glad to suffer for the ends of God? That's all the evidence you need. What do I mean? I'm just going to give you some examples. So maybe as you're thinking about this, you have these at the fore of your mind. Do you have young children? Are you able to say out loud to your spouse, to your friends, and even in your own heart, I am dying daily for this little girl. I'm dying daily for her, laying down my appetites, wants, and desires, not only just because she's cute and cuddly, but because she is an eternal creation to be resurrected one day, and I want her to be in the kingdom. You have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ who loved the little children and died for them. Are you able to look at the laborious service you give to your boss as if it were for Christ? And are you able to say, I can serve and labor under this individual's imperfections because my my main boss is this eternal king and Lord and I have eternal wages and eternal reward in his kingdom. So it's a little thing to suffer here and now. This job, this labor that I have, it's hard, but I can see how it increases the quality of life for those for whom I perform it. I hope they would taste the resurrection, that they would have an anticipation and an appetite for eternity in it and not simply be glad in the things of this world. That's how I lift up my labors to the Lord. Are you even able to just look at Lord's Day worship and say, I don't show up to this place because I feel like it. I show up here because I often don't feel like it, but um, I'm here to proclaim my belief in Christ's resurrection and to welcome those who maybe do feel like it and desperately need a fellowship of believers who are not worldly. Many in this church have stood up for causes that require a great deal of effort and energy and time. Tony Farrell, one of our deacons, sits on the board of a mercy ministry organization. He has done so for years. That's him giving his time, his energies, and efforts for the kingdom. I was blessed at the last church of Planned Parenthood, Charlie Eden, Charlie and Brianna, they got a little, little baby. Charlie came out, he came up to me and said, man, this is like the first week that I've had where um, we haven't just been totally burdened with the needs of our baby. And I just, I needed to be out here to stand for the kingdom. When we examine ourselves and see these things, we see a fellowship with Christ and company with his saints that is a hard and sharp contrast with the world. 
I even ask you to consider whether you have been willing to speak hard truths to people not ready and willing to receive it. This last week, I had to tell a friend that he needs to stop sleeping with his girlfriend. (laughs) And say that in a way that isn't really that mean. You don't have to be mean at all, actually, for it to be really offensive, for the record. So you can just, if you say it at all, that's dying for the kingdom. The two things you can do with this exercise are pretty straightforward. And on this, I hope that you will take opportunity to say out loud your ability to conquer in these difficult situations, these challenging times on the basis of the resurrection. I'm gonna speak to you men especially. All of your speech in your home can't be pragmatic. You don't and you cannot be a man. You can't be a man who only talks about the practical. You need to tell your family that you can face your workday because you believe in the resurrection. They need to hear it. You need to say things that are worshipful and not just pragmatic with an immediate end in view. And it might seem weird to say, I believe in the resurrection, but I'll have you know we do this confession of faith every Lord's Day, not just as a motion of worship, but so that we can all be people who are prone to confessing what we believe, sharing it and speaking it and celebrating it in our houses, in our relationships, when it's not practical, but most worshipful. Why we do a confession of faith, you need to verbalize your faith and hope in the resurrection in your home. And if you do, your kids and your wife and those around you will believe it. They'll believe it. The second reason you need to do this exercise is for your defenses. You need to know how and where you are dying for the kingdom and have union with Christ in part so that you have defenses against people out there who stand ready to guilt you and to manipulate you in terrible ways. You will meet people in your Christian life if you have not already who think that whatever cause they're standing for, absolutely everybody else needs to be standing for too, and if they're not, they're not a real Christian. You need to be able to say to those who come to you and say, you should be devoting more money, time, and energy to this cause. Brother, don't you worry. I'm dying for the kingdom in this cause and in this way and for these people. And my conscience is clear in it. Trinitas, many of you know how much I love pro-life ministry and I'm burdened, saddened to say on behalf of many advocates of it that they fall into this trap of supposing that their ministry is the only ministry And that they can burden everyone's conscience and even call you out for not being a Christian if you don't stand the way they stand. Friends, we lay before you the opportunity to participate in the church at Planned Parenthood as an opportunity to stand for the kingdom. But I'll tell you right now, if someone says to me, I can't make it because, see, I'm dying for this little baby who didn't sleep last night and I'm trying to take care of them, I will say to that friend, that's as pro-life as anything we ever did on the street corner. You need to know where you're dying for the kingdom for your own defenses. You need to know that for your own conscience sake. At the end of the day, anything that you do out of a sheer sense of guilt rather than out of faith in the Lord, the Bible says is sin. For our conscience is not to be burdened by those who would like to be our Lord and master. We have to know how we are submitting to our Lord and master. Maybe he's laying it on your heart and burdening you that you need to stand up for those who are least among us. Make sure you respond to him. Make sure you respond to him. The funny thing about all of this is that Paul 
could be critiqued for failing to sufficiently oppose every social ill. Paul, so far as I know, didn't invent AA to help alcoholics. Paul, so far as I know, uh, wasn't the social warrior who ended any vestige of the abuses of slavery in the ancient world, of which there were many. But Paul did die daily for the gospel and its preaching. Know what you're dying daily for. Celebrate it. Proclaim the resurrection in it and do it out of gratitude for a salvation graciously given. Do it in thankfulness to a Lord with whom you want to have company. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, many of us find our chief company in the world and for this we repent. Others of us have company with other Christians and yet we do not have any depth of company with you. We pray for appetites for the kingdom, Lord God. We pray for a disciplined sort of engagement in the advance of the kingdom because we want to be near to you. We want to taste the great ends of the kingdom and the resurrection. We want to be citizens of an age to come, not invested in a world that is imperishing, invested in worldly things. Lord, we pray these things that our faith in the resurrection would become more evident, that it would grow and not wane. We pray that we would have lips to speak of our great hope, to do so daily, regularly, and not seldom. Father, we ask all of these things for your great and mighty namesake. We ask all of these things that the gospel, that Jesus Christ, that your love for us, Father, and that the sanctifying work of the Spirit might be magnified, and that the church would be like a luminescent city on a hill calling the world to repentance and to salvation. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. Amen. At this time,